0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst, except once a month when we watch a horror-adjacent movie as a bonus episode. My name's Ben,
1: and I'm Sarah.
0: Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah?
1: I am doing good. Folks, if you notice anything odd about the audio, that is because we have moved into the new castle scream scene and we haven't put anything up in the bat cave yet. So, you know, you might hear some like bats fly by, but that echoey sound is uh, our voices echoing off the bear cave walls.
0: Indeed. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how many episodes it is before we like have a permanent sort of setup. I'm not sure what order some of the episodes are going to go up in, but if you have heard or will hear our episode on Lady Vampire, uh, that will sound very different because we were sitting on the floor in the living room. <laughs> now we're sitting on chairs in the dining room. So
1: No, in the Bat Cave, Ben. I literally the dining said, room
0: is in the Batcave, yeah, Sarah. Okay. Yeah, well, I just
1: want to make sure that, you know, the word picture that I've painted yeah. is continued. Sure.
0: And, you know, we're now sitting on chairs at a table because Sarah was willing to sacrifice uh, some audio clarity for my butt's comfort, <laughs> which I highly appreciate.
1: So what are we watching today, Ben?
0: Well, Sarah, each of our July horror-adjacent bonus movie options on the poll on Patreon was related to new houses in sort of celebration of us moving into the Newcastle scream scene. And the winner by, I believe, a large margin Mm -hmm. was Tim Burton's Beetlejuice from 1988.
1: So... I think I've said this before, but just in case everyone hold on to your hats, I've never seen
0: Beetlejuice. Right, which is both wild because I think it's very up your alley. Mm -hmm. Um, And so while we can take a moment to be be shocked that somehow you never got around to it, I think the more important thing is to be excited that uh, now we get to show you uh, Beetlejuice. And also like it'll be interesting in terms of, you know, cause it's comedy and comedy is sort of the genre that ages the poorest. And so it'll be interesting to see like, from my perspective of like, does this hold up mm. versus your perspective, watching it without any like nostalgia goggles on. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will say, uh, isn't the name of this movie and like the name of the guy who gets summoned, like, you know, you say the name three times and he appears. So should we be saying the name of this movie so frequently? Or should we be saying like, like how they talk about Macbeth in a theater?
0: Ah, I see what you're saying. Well, here's the thing. And I'll get into this later. They've been trying to make a sequel to Beetlejuice for as long as I've been alive. And it still hasn't happened yet. So for the sake of like, Burton and Keaton and Ryder's careers, I guess. They need the help, I guess. <laughs> they don't. Um, I think we have to say it a lot uh, in order to will <laughs> the,
1: the sequel, sequel into existence. Amazing. So I wouldn't,
0: I wouldn't worry about it. Okay, cool. Um, well, okay, so you've never seen the movie. Follow-up question, did you ever see the cartoon series as a kid?
1: Uh, clips here or there, but I never watched it because I was very confused by it because... I don't know. I never saw, sat down to watch
0: it front to back, right? Sure. I definitely watched the cartoon as a kid, and I'll talk more about the cartoon later. But I also saw the movie like pretty early on. Like, I definitely saw the cartoon first. The cartoon was meant for kids. Um, the movie is rated PG, um, but I would say that like the target audience is probably like you know family comedy skewed a little older yeah um and so the show makes some changes to the premise in order to make it like more child appropriate and I do know that there's like a sizable amount of people who like if they watched that show religiously as a kid and then didn't see the movie until they were adults or something have found the movie quite shocking Um, but I saw the movie when I was you know maybe 10 or something and I think from things like The Mask, the animated series, and other like movies that got animated series in the 90s. I was kind of used to like the cartoon versions of movies being you know, a little wonky in terms of their continuity. Speaking of which, the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> it was a wild time in Hollywood. All the executives were on cocaine. I'm not going to talk a lot about that, but just maybe have that in the back of your head as like... As you lay out the story of at, how this movie got made? Right, as like context. Okay. To talk about Beetlejuice, we gotta talk about Tim Burton.
1: Absolutely.
0: This is basically the first real Tim Burton feature film. Oh, um, it's actually his second feature film, but well i'll 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 get into it. Uh, it's still, I think not quite the stereotype Tim Burton aesthetic, although I think you can watch this and easily identify that it's Tim Burton, but it's definitely like the first Burton movie that's like a Tim Burton movie. Uh so yeah, let's start with Tim Burton. Before I get too deep into that, you and I like both have a very strong familiarity with the films of Tim Burton when I was growing up as like a teenager, he was, you know, like an outsider genius. Um, He hadn't yet kind of become the joke parody of himself that he is now. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite Tim Burton movie?
1: I guess The 89 Batman.
0: Wow. I would have thought for sure you were going to say Big Fish.
1: I forgot that he did Big Fish.
0: Okay. Is Big Fish the answer? (laughs)
1: I guess so. Yes. Okay,
0: because I knew you loved that movie.
1: I do. I really do.
0: Yeah, um, I think growing up, my favorite Tim Burton movie was probably Batman Returns. But mm-hmm. like, as a young adult, that shifted, and and now it's it's probably Ed Wood, and it has been Ed Wood for for a while. I think. See,
1: my problem with Ed Wood, and quite a few Tim Burton projects, is uh, the people he works with.
0: Yeah, but like.
1: <sighs> okay. Johnny I, Depp is going to come up a little bit later in what I have to talk about too. Yeah. Though briefly.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think it is fair to retroactively hate on movies based on how shitty the people in them like later become or turn out to be, which is going to, you know what? I'm just going to yeah. underline uh, that.
1: Sure, and what I will say in response to that is that I'm not saying like burn every copy of any movie Johnny Depp or anyone else who has been shitty has done. Mm-hmm. I'm saying I personally have to figure out like where is my comfort level because sure. everyone's comfort level is going to be different.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Johnny Depp is not in this movie. This is pre-Burton discovering Johnny Depp, and it's actually long before he discovers. Helena Bonham Carter either that's not until the 2000s
1: but we've gotten off on a tangent
0: well but you know there are people in the cast with problematic elements to their lives yes so this is a relevant topic but yeah I think in general people's familiarity with Tim Burton is as like the guy who popularized and like sort of brought to the mainstream that kind of like suburban goth aesthetic sure yeah you know like hot topic doesn't exist without all of the nightmare before christmas merchandise
1: oh well then nightmare before christmas was not directed by tim burton no but
0: it was produced by tim burton and written by tim burton and still
1: gonna put it out there definitely
0: sort of secreted from tim burton's pores oh
1: god why would you put it like that
0: so tim burton was born on august 25th 1958 in burbank california Uh, which I think is is significant to note that like he's basically from Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, He grew up making home movies as a preteen using his family's eight millimeter camera with like crude stop motion effects. Uh, He was an introspective kid. He tended towards arts rather than academics. And he grew up loving Roald Dahl, Dr. Seuss, Universal monster movies, uh, Ray Harryhausen, stop-motion films, Vincent Price movies, and like other examples of horror and fantasy, basically. After graduating high school, he attended the California Institute of the Arts to learn character animation, Uh, CalArts having been founded in the late 50s, I believe, as something of a pipeline to employment at Disney, Mm -hmm. uh, with Walt Disney being one of the founders of that school. And a student film done in pencil that Burton made called Stock of the Celery Monster in 1979 attracted the attention of Disney. And so Burton was brought on as an apprentice working as a concept artist on the films Fox and the Hound, Tron, and The Black Cauldron, though none of his work was used in any of those films. Sure. Sure. If you do see stock of the celery monster, you can see why an animation studio would be like, we need to hire this guy because he's very clearly extremely talented. But quite rightly, his aesthetic was quickly judged not to be Disney material in the style of the company at the time, um, because this was sort of back in the day when disney had like a very definitive house style of what their product looked like what their animation looked like and they didn't deviate from that um very significantly it wasn't like now where disney's trying to corner every single market back then it was like disney had their thing that they did well and didn't you know
1: They tried to branch out with the Black Cauldron and that didn't go well.
0: Yeah, the animation department was in a lot of trouble in the early 80s um, to the point where the company was legitimately thinking about closing down the animation department in favor of like just making the live action films they were doing at the time. But, you know, this isn't a Disney podcast, so (laughs) I will simply say that the young animator won support within the company from executive Julie Hickson and head of creative development Tom Wilhite, who gave Burton a budget of $60,000 to produce a short animated film based on one of his poems. Together with a small team of animators, including Robert Heinrichs, Burton created a stop-motion film in the German expressionist style about a boy named Vincent Malloy who happens to look an awful lot like Tim Burton. Uh, Vincent Malloy idolizes actor Vincent Price and imagines himself in situations like those of the Edgar Allan Poe movies that Price starred in during the 1960s. And like, you know, he imagines himself as like a mad scientist and like doing all kinds of macabre things, uh, you know, dunking his relatives in hot wax, uh, things like this. Basically, the story of the short is that Vincent has a very active imagination, but it's all about like spooky macabre things um, depicting a lot of situations that were quite dark by the standards of Disney at that time. Though again, like today, it would be totally... No one would bat an eyelash. Yeah. Burton even managed to get his childhood idol, Vincent Price, to narrate the film, uh, which was called Vincent. And that started a friendship between the two men that would last until Price's death in 1993. The six-minute short was screened ahead of the teen drama Tex in 1982. Uh, Tex was a live-action production that marked one of the earliest attempts by Disney to experiment with more mature content. Um, It stars Matt Dillon, and it's, you know, the teens smoke marijuana and get into trouble, and it's like, you know, dramatic, Degrassi kind of themes and stuff. Um, Tex wasn't very successful at the box office. Uh, The short, meanwhile, with its celebration of a less mainstream iteration of childhood imagination, uh, stood out as a little odd, for Disney, and ended up winning a lot of awards at animation festivals. And because of those awards and the positive critical attention, um, that sort of gave Julie Hickson and Rick Heinrichs the rope, I suppose, to produce a live-action TV special for the Disney Channel that would be directed by Burton. Uh, The script was written by Hickson, and this was like Tim Burton's first live-action production. The special aired exactly once on Halloween in 1983, and it was a Hansel and Gretel adaptation with an all-Asian-American cast inspired by kung fu movies and tokusatsu films. So,
1: Was this terrible? Is that why it only aired
0: (laughs) once? Um, It was very different from anything on TV at the time. It has a very bright color scheme inspired by, you know, Godzilla movies and things like that which makes it very different from Vincent which was in black and white um but the art style of the production is still like unmistakably Tim Burton you can definitely tell that it's him but it's Tim Burton doing like kung fu hustle kind of jokes basically (laughs) okay Um, yeah after that came the half hour live action black and white theatrical short film frankenweenie in 1984 which was also produced by hickson and heinrichs it's about a young boy in american suburbia named victor frankenstein uh, he's played by barrett oliver who played bastion in the never-ending story and uh, basically victor's dog sparky uh dies so victor resurrects him with electricity in sort of a goofy parody of the james whale frankenstein movies Frankenweenie was originally supposed to accompany the 1984 re-release of The Jungle Book, but Disney felt that the film was not suitable for young audiences, (laughs) which again, like if you watch it now, it's very, very goofy and tame, but it was just so different from the kind of stuff Disney was used to putting out at that time. Uh, So eventually they released it accompanying Touchstone Films' Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend.
1: I've never heard of that movie. Um,
0: it's bad. Uh, it's a movie about some people who find a baby dinosaur in like, I think, Africa or something. And it's mostly like this animatronic baby dinosaur is kind of the like centerpiece of the movie. One of those like trying to follow up on E.T.'s success kind of films. Okay. Yeah, and it was released by Touchstone, which. For younger viewers who are used to Disney just releasing every movie you ever see, uh, Touchstone was like a label that the Walt Disney Company used to put out live action films that weren't like...
1: That weren't like Disney brand.
0: Yeah, that weren't about like twins trying to get their parents to get back together and things like that, right? So yeah, Disney kind of like dumped Frank and Weenie onto that movie and then the company basically concluded that Burton's projects were a waste of company resources and fired him. Oh dear. hmm Which is kind of ironic because I think most of the stuff he's been doing for the last 10 to 15 years has been Disney stuff.
1: Yeah. They he, realized their mistake basically.
0: Yeah. Uh, however, even in this sort of dark moment of being fired, uh, Burton was on the cusp of success. Because comedian Paul Rubens saw Frank and Weenie and fell in love with Burton's style. Rubens had developed a stage show called The Pee Wee Herman Show, which was a parody of local TV children's shows of the 50s and 60s. The show had gotten aired as a special on HBO, and that special had done well enough that Warner Brothers had offered Rubens a movie deal for the Pee Wee Herman character. Rubens asked Burton to direct. And Burton agreed, and then hired the frontman of the experimental new wave band Oingo Boingo to compose the score for the movie because, well, Burton was a fan of Oingo Boingo. Uh, So despite having no experience scoring films at all, Danny Elfman agreed to do the score for the film, beginning a long-lasting professional relationship wherein Elfman would score every subsequent Burton film save for three Pee-wee Herman's Big Adventure was released in 1985 and was a surprise smash hit, grossing $40 million on a $7 million budget. Holy moly. And garnering critical acclaim. Burton suddenly found himself an in-demand director for Hollywood's upcoming zany comedies. Um, he essentially had, you know, gone from being the dark weirdo at Disney to now being branded as like the guy you give goofy offbeat comedies to. Um, and so, as script offers poured in, Burton spent 1986 directing television, uh, including an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and an episode of Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater. Burton would turn down most of the scripts he was offered in this period, including the sequel Big Top Pee Wee and the talking horse movie Hot to Trot, citing a lack of originality. (laughs) That brings us to producer David Geffen, who got his start as a talent agent at MCA, parlayed that into a career as like a record label executive, Parlayed that into a career as a Warner Brothers executive, and then from there went on to found his own record label, Geffen Records, which then enabled him to found his own production company, uh, which led to him being the producer of dark comedies like Lost in America, After Hours, and Little Shop of Horrors. Um, Because of his former role as an executive at Warner Brothers, the Geffen production company had, like, a very close working relationship with Warner Brothers. And Geffen was, like, for a long time, one of the most powerful out gay men in Hollywood. Having done Little Shop of Horrors, uh, Geffen brought Burton a script, you know, hearing that burton was looking for a project that he was bemoaning this lack of originality in these comedies um he brought burton the script for beetlejuice which was written by michael mcdowell who had written the alfred hitchcock presents episode that burton had directed oh cool yeah so kind of like hey you know
1: that guy this guy yeah
0: exactly So Michael McDowell was born in Alabama in 1950, and he graduated from Brandeis University in Massachusetts with a Ph.D. in English in 1978. He was an acclaimed novelist known for Southern Gothic horror, uh, as well as very well-researched historical fiction, mystery novels, thrillers, and parodies. Uh, He explicitly wrote for commercial appeal, sticking to genres that people would actually buy and read, rather than going for, like, high literature. Um, He was quite proud of, like, his books being in bookstores, and Stephen King once called him the best writer of paperback originals in America. In 1985, he wrote the novelization of Clue, and from there, uh, he... Can I ask
1: a quick question? Sorry. Did he like include different endings?
0: Yes. In fact, the novelization has one more ending than the movie did uh, because the novelization includes an ending that they wrote and didn't shoot.
1: Oh, cool. Okay. Sorry to interrupt.
0: (laughs) No, that's fine. Um, So he basically used his contacts from doing that to start getting jobs writing screenplays uh, for a lot of like anthology television series in the late 1980s. Um, And unfortunately, he passed away in 1999 from AIDS, uh, survived by his partner, theater director Lawrence Senelik. So you've not seen the film, Sarah, but I'm going to bet that the majority of our listening audience has. So I'm going to talk a little bit about McDowell's original script, um, which is quite different. From the film as it was released, uh, for one thing, the tone was much less comedic and much darker. Um, the car crash of the Maitlands, uh, which sort of happens before the start of the movie, in the finished product, uh, was graphically depicted in the first scene of the film, showing them drowning, showing Barbara's arm getting crushed under the car. Then later, instead of the iconic scene where the Dietzes are like possessed and start to sing songs around the dinner table, they were instead attacked by like killer vines. And the character of Beetlejuice in the original version was a winged demon oh. who uh, appeared in sort of the guise of a Middle Eastern man. Um, oh. This is like far before Middle Eastern terrorism stereotypes. Um, so yeah, but there's still
1: stuff there, you know,
0: in this version, like the idea is they're referencing the fact that, um, so like Beetlejuice, uh, the character's name is spelt B E T E L G E U S E. Um, whereas the title of the film is spelt, you know, Beetlejuice. Um, and Beetlejuice is the name of a star. Uh, it's the traditional name of Alpha Orionis. And that name comes from Arabic. Um, mm. It's uh, the Arabic name is Yad al-Jaza, uh, which over years sort of became Beetlejuice.
1: So was the idea that he was supposed to be like a djinn?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's a like evil demonic spirit, but he's he's depicted as Arabic. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so that's what they're going for there. Um, in the original draft of the film, Beetlejuice is trying to kill the Dietzes rather than just scare them out of the house. And instead of wanting to marry the teen lead of the film, Lydia, he is very explicitly trying to have sex with her. Okay. Um, There was no rule about saying his name three times here. All they had to do was like summon him once and now he's summoned and he's free to go and do whatever he wants at any time. Um, And additionally, Uh, Lydia had a younger nine-year-old sister in this version. And unlike the movie where like Lydia is the one who can see the Maitlands and interact with them in this version, it's the nine-year-old who can see them and interact with them. And because of that, Beetlejuice like singles out the nine-year-old for his attacks. And he horrifically murders that nine-year-old at the film's climax by mutilating the sister while in the form of a rabid squirrel, uh, also, Lydia dies in a fire at the end.
1: Sure. So that sounds much more like a horror movie.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a horror movie with some like satirical elements here and there, basically. Yeah. So this script was originally bought by um a guy named Larry Wilson, who worked in the development department at Universal Pictures. And Wilson, like, bought the script, thought it was, you know, a cool idea. And sent it to an executive at Universal, like a production executive. And that executive got back to Wilson and basically said, hey, what the fuck are you doing with your life? Like, what are you doing with your career that you would pick a bizarre like weird unfilmable script like this and present it to me like it's good material. Like you have like a promising career in front of you. You have like a good eye for material. This is some fucking nonsense garbage. Like you need to reconsider your life if you're submitting this to me. Holy moly. Yeah. So Wilson then sold the script to Geffen's production company and then Geffen gave it to Burton. So after the project was greenlit at Warner Brothers as Burton's next project with a budget of $15 million, Geffen and Burton actually got Wilson to come over uh, to produce the film and also work with McDowell to rewrite the script. Um, They developed a new ending uh, where the film ended with an exorcism ritual to destroy Beetlejuice and the Maitlands move into the miniature version of their house that Adam had made while the Dietzes continue to live in the real house. So kind of a a compromise between the two families. Uh, Unhappy with the direction of the rewrites, Burton fired Wilson and McDowell and brought on writer Warren Scarin to rewrite the screenplay.
1: So normally seeing, um, those changes of writers, uh, I would consider a movie to be in trouble.
0: Mm. So Scarin uh, was born in Minnesota in 1946, but he went to school in Houston, Texas, and he worked in Austin at the Texas department of health and human services.
1: (laughs) Okay. How does he make it to Hollywood?
0: So he sort of bounced around in the government for a while. He worked with like the, texas department for foster parents and then in 1970 he was appointed executive director of the texas film commission by Mm. the governor at the time basically his job was to encourage movies to shoot in texas and under his tenure nearly 40 feature films were shot in that state then in 1974, uh, Scarn agreed to kind of be the go-between to facilitate the deal to get this, like, little Texas indie movie, um, a worldwide distribution deal so that, you know, it would be seen. Um, that was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh. And Scarin facilitated that deal in exchange for around 17% of the movie's profits, which netted him, like, around four to five million dollars I think if my math is even partially correct yeah um even if it's wrong it was enough money that Scarin could quit the film commission and enter the film industry proper with kind of that on his resume he became known as a talented script doctor and in his role as associate producer of Top Gun he was the one who assembled all of the numerous competing drafts into an actual working shooting script. Uh, he did that in about less than a week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, he's not like credited as a writer on the movie, but like.
1: Script doctors really are.
0: Exactly. So he also co wrote Beverly Hills Cop 2 in 1987. And after Beetlejuice, Burton would use him again to rewrite Sam Han's script for Batman in 1989. And Scarin passed away in 1990 of bone cancer. So, Scarin's rewrite made the film more comedic. Uh, It removed the graphic violence and introduced the concept of the afterlife as a bureaucracy. Uh, He also changed um, an element in the original script where, whenever the Maitlands try to leave their house, they end up in this like void limbo filled with, like, gears and clockwork and stuff. Um, In Scarin's version, every time they go outside, it's a different limbo, uh, including a trip to Saturn's moon Titan, which was depicted as being inhabited by giant sandworms. Scarin also brought in the idea of the hauntings utilizing songs, uh, though in his script they were, like, R&B songs, whereas the finished film would quite famously use the music of Calypso... Uh, artist Harry Belafonte, Scarin toned the character of Beetlejuice down uh, from a murderous rapist into a troublesome pervert, uh, and he featured him in his script as a Middle Eastern man um, without, like, kind of the the winged demon true form. Okay. Um, and in this script, he spoke in like kind of um like African American vernacular English, basically. Okay. Yeah um, kind of like a cool black guy kind of vibe to the character now. Uh, and this version of the movie ended with the Dietzes leaving the house with the exception of Lydia who stays behind. So, you know, at this point the movie starts going into production, uh, and they need to start finding a cast and it was really difficult, uh, for them to find a cast because the script was so weird that people didn't (laughs) really know what to make of it. They didn't, know if they wanted to do it basically the only thing that got people on board was that burton had had such success with Wee herman's big adventure from what i know the first person to sign off on the script uh to appear and the only person who did it without at least saying no once uh, was gina davis
1: interesting yeah so while i may have not seen beetlejuice uh i do know that the premise involves a recently deceased couple trying to scare the new homeowners out of their house. Uh, I now know a little bit more thanks to these spoilers you gave me. What Mm -hmm. the fuck, Ben? Yeah. Um, (laughs) So let's start with that couple for cast. Um, Barbara and Adam Maitland, played by Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin.
0: And I'll just note that um, her name is Barbara as a reference to Night of the Living Dead.
1: Oh, neat. Love that. So, Gina Davis was born Virginia Elizabeth Davis, uh, and she had four future films under her belt when she came to do this movie, so she was already a well-regarded talent. She was born on January 21st, 1956, in Massachusetts, and she quickly fell in love with music as a young child. During high school, she was an exchange student in Sweden, where she began using Gina instead of Virginia, because of a popular Swedish show over there. Huh. Uh, After graduation, she went to Boston University to get a degree in drama, and then began working as a model for a few years, before being spotted by director Sidney Pollack, who cast Davis in the 1982 film Tootsie. Right. Which I believe is also being covered by a rival podcast, Kyle and Dave versus
0: The Machine. Oh yeah, I guess it would be. I was uh, recently on that show, uh, or will be on it soon. I don't know their production schedule. Watch out for the episode that I'm going to guest on, or have guested on, about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan.
1: So Tootsie was a highly successful film commercially and critically. And Davis continued acting, rather than going back to modeling, but shifted to TV with a show called Buffalo Bill and she also had guest appearances um on other shows uh before making two films in 1985 one called Fletch and the other called Transylvania 65000
0: 5,000. Mm, yeah
1: she was cast in 1986's The Fly yeah. opposite her then boyfriend Jeff Goldblum yeah uh and then followed that film with 1988's Beetlejuice
0: wow okay so this is her follow up to The Fly that's so interesting
1: Now, Beetlejuice did do well uh, commercially and critically, as I'm sure you will go into more detail about. But the other film that she does in 1988 called The Accidental Tourist would actually be more significant for Davis's
0: career. Interesting, Um, because I've never heard of it.
1: Oh, well, she won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for it. Oh, she saw continued success into the early 90s, for example, with Thelma and Louise in 1991, a league of their own in 1992, and then a, unfortunately had a series of flops, which led to a downturn in her career. Um, particularly, I will point out 1994's Speechless and 1995's Cutthroat Island, Ooh. which is, uh, I'm not sure if anymore, but at, for a while was um, identified by the guinness world records as the largest box office loss record
0: yeah i don't know if it still has that record but it was definitely the reason why well one of the reasons why for a while it was considered like a a fool's errand to make a pirate movie
1: ah yeah so she took a break from acting uh returning to the screen in 1999's Stuart little Mm mm-hmm Um, she had a television sitcom in the 2000s, uh, the Gina Davis show and, uh, commander in chief around 2005.
0: Yeah. I remember that.
1: Also going on in the 2000s, uh, she launched the Gina Davis Institute on gender in media in 2007, which, um, basically aims to promote um, gender equity in depiction of women, sure. um, specifically in regards to children's media. Hmm. And then in the 2010s, she saw a resurgence of her career. You could point to Grey's Anatomy as part of that, because she was on that show from 2014 to 2018. Okay. And she also did voice work during this time. Uh, She did um, the English dub of Ghibli's When Marnie Was There in 2014. Um, She was also on Netflix's Glow in 2019, which is wild. I didn't realize that. Um, And most recently, she was Huntara on Netflix's 2019 season of She-Ra and Princesses of Power. Oh, neat.
0: So her husband in the movie is played by Alec Baldwin. I think this is a really early Alec Baldwin movie. Um, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) judging. Well, okay. On the relative scale of it, it has been over thirty years. Um, <laughs> but uh, what I do know about Baldwin in this film is that, um it took him a few tries to agree. They had to really, like, convince him because he thought the script was too weird, and that this is his least favorite movie of all of the movies he's ever done. He thinks his performance in this is terrible.
1: interesting. Well, Alec Baldwin, as you said, is playing Davis's husband in the movie, and he was born Alexander Ray Baldwin III on April 3rd in 1958 in New York. He is the oldest of the Baldwin brothers. He attended George Washington University from 1976 to 79 until he lost the election for student body president. Uh, after losing, he transferred to NYU for wow. acting.
0: <laughs> when you lose so hard that you transfer to a different school to avoid the shame.
1: He then uh, studied at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. Um, and while he was studying and, and learning acting, he also started um, auditioning. And he had his television debut on the soap opera The Doctors uh, mm-hmm. that ran from 1980 to 82. He made his Broadway debut in 1986 with a revival of a play called Loot. Now, he continued on the stage um, for quite a while. Uh, He would actually earn a Tony nomination for playing Stanley in Streetcar Named Desire in 1992.
0: Okay, I can see that, yeah. His film debut,
1: however, came in 1987's Forever Lulu, directed by Amos Kolik. And in 1988, he was in... Five movies, wow. including
0: Beetlejuice. That's a breakout year.
1: Yes. So his star is on the rise, and that continues into the 1990s, particularly with Hunt for Red October, where he's the lead and mm-hmm. pretty good, I think.
0: Yeah, great movie.
1: He would meet his future wife and future ex Mrs. Baldwin, Kim Bassinger, on 1991's The Marrying Man. They were married in 1993, uh, separated t- in 2000, and divorced in 2002. And he's very bitter about all of it. Mm. I won't be going into further details because it's very awful. Sure. And I really don't like it. Sure. In 1994, he tried to uh, kind of get some of that comic book adaptation money with the Shadow adaptation, mm-hmm. um, which he's pretty dang good in as well. Yeah,
0: I think he does a great job in that yeah. movie for like certain values of great.
1: He then kind of shifts towards character acting with 2001's Pearl Harbor, 2004's The Aviator, and 2006's The Departed. Well, yeah, like
0: The Shadow didn't do well. No, I think is the key part of that story, and I think that kind of ended his like leading man period. And he he is very handsome, so I think you know you see that gap where all of these character actor roles start coming in the 2000s because he had to kind of wait to get old enough to be a character actor, because I think he was like cursed by like, oh, your career's on a downslope, so no one wants to use you as a leading man, but you're too handsome to be anything else.
1: (laughs) From 2006 to 2013, he saw much critical acclaim, with a comedy turn on the show 30 Rock, Mm -hmm. earning two Emmys, three Golden Globes, and seven Screen Actors Guild Awards. Uh, making him the male performer with the most sag awards in history. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, he has a lot of sag. <laughs>
0: um,
1: <laughs> the way I was waiting to make that joke. Yeah.
0: Alec Baldwin's definitely one of those guys where you can like where he figured himself out as I think a performer once he realized he could be funny. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that it was okay to be funny.
0: Yeah, he's he's much better comedic than he ever was dramatic. Not that he's like bad as a dramatic actor. Yeah,
1: I think that's why The Shadow is so interesting because I've mainly known him as a comedic actor. Right. He's trying to be so serious in The Shadow, uh, rightly so for the material, but it's just like,
0: yeah, it's interesting to me. Yeah, and Beetlejuice is a comedy, but he's kind of, um, he's kind of the straight man yeah. in it almost, yeah.
1: Uh, This turn to comedy led him to Saturday Night Live, portraying Donald Trump, um, also earning other Emmy nominations for that. And he regularly continues to appear and act in films, um, including the 2017 classic Boss Baby as The Boss Baby, (laughs) 2018's Mission Impossible Fallout, and 2021's Boss Baby Family Business. Man. Which is wild, because I thought the boss baby was played by um, James Woods. Huh.
0: Nope.
1: Yeah, clearly, yeah. (laughs) However, he has most recently been in the news for a shooting incident on the set of a film called Rust in 2021. He was the lead as well as the producer, during filming, um, and actually it was like a rehearsal, he discharged a gun, uh, which shot and killed the film cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, and injured the director, Joel Souza. And he's currently in a wrongful death suit from Hutchins' family. Rightly so, in my opinion. Hot mm-hmm. take.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he totally deserves to be raked over the coals for that. Um, You know, even with it being an accident, I mean, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but, like, there was a lot of safety problems on that set, and so even if it's like, hey, you know, it was an accident, the accident is ultimately his fault, not because he's the one who pulled the trigger, but because he was the film's producer, and thus, like, you know, things like the standard of safety on set, you know, fall under his responsibility.
1: Yeah. As far as Beetlejuice goes, Baldwin... Uh, would be considered kind of a common face, but not yet star material.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like this is coming out in a year where he's got all these other movies. It sounds like his agent was like, let's shotgun you and see where you stick kind of thing. You know? Yeah, exactly.
1: That's probably why he went for something that's this weird.
0: Mm -hmm. So Burton's original choice to play the title role of Beetlejuice uh, was actually Sammy Davis Jr., which which kind of makes sense if you think about like Warren Scarin's script having like these R and B songs uh, for the musical bits and like the writing of Beetlejuice is like kind of talking in like the some stereotypical jive basically and Burton really loved Sammy Davis Jr. but. Um, Basically, no one would go for that idea, including Sammy Davis Jr. Um, (laughs) There was a lot of other people who were suggested. Um, Sam Kinison's name came up at a certain point. Um, But ultimately, uh, producer David Geffen thought the right fit for the role was Michael Keaton. Yes. And um, if I remember correctly, Geffen had to both convince Burton that Keaton was right for the part And convince Keaton that the part was right for him. Like, Mm -hmm. nobody thought Michael Keaton should be in this movie but David Geffen.
1: What's interesting is Michael Keaton's kind of, like, the biggest star Mm -hmm. of the actors in this movie.
0: Yeah, at least, like, at the time. Yes. Right? Instead of, like, retroactively. Yeah.
1: So he was born Michael John Douglas Mm -hmm. on September 5th, 1951. And he was the youngest of seven children. After high school, he studied speech at Kent State, um, which I would presume would include like um, becoming a bit of a rhetorician as well as delivery um, rather than, say, acting.
0: Yeah, he's, he learned like oratory and stuff.
1: Yeah. And it was during his time at Kent State where he began to dabble in stage plays. Now, after... Kent State. He returned home to Pittsburgh um, and had his television debut with Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood.
0: Oh, weird.
1: Yes, he plays one of the uh, characters, but then he was also a production assistant.
0: Wild. I did not know that.
1: When Mr. Rogers died in 2004, Michael Keaton actually hosted the memorial for him. Moving to L.A. to continue pursuing TV, uh, the Screen Actors Guild required a name change as they already had an actor, Michael Douglas, and a host, Mike Douglas. And Keaton was the first name he opened to in the phone book. Amazing. With TV, Michael Keaton saw guest appearances on the Mary Tyler Moore show and others, and his film debut came in the non-speaking role in 1978's Rabbit Test. It's John Rivers. Never heard of it. Yeah, it doesn't look very good. After that movie, um, he went back to TV and uh, starred in a show called Working Stiffs in 1980 um, opposite Jim Belushi. Hmm. That show was short-lived, but it caught the eye of Ron Howard, who cast Keaton in 1982's Night Shift, Hmm. uh, which is also recently covered on rival podcast Kyle and Dave vs.
0: the Machine. They, they, they watch every movie in a given year and they're doing 1982. That's, that's what's happening here.
1: Now, Night Shift would be his breakout role and would solidify Keaton as a comedic actor. Yeah. Um, he followed that up with uh, Mr. Mom in 1983, Johnny Dangerously in 1984... And, you know, Keaton didn't mind comedy, but he really wanted to show that he was more. Hmm. Um, He really wanted some dramatic roles. And that nearly came in Woody Allen's The Purple Rose of Cairo in 1985. But after filming started, Allen replaced Keaton with Jeff Daniels because Keaton was too modern looking.
0: Huh. Okay. Because it's a... Period film. Yeah.
1: Basically, yeah. 1988 saw Keaton change his persona to audiences, both with Beetlejuice and the critical acclaim for that performance, as well as another movie that came out this year called Clean and Sober, where he plays a drug-addicted realtor. Hmm. It's a very dramatic role. Yeah. He returned to Tim Burton with 1989's Batman, though um, he admitted that at first he thought it was going to be a comedy. Yeah, because
0: they were casting... Michael Keaton.
1: Yeah, and he thought it would be like in the vein of like Adam West, who, you know, it's kind of interesting because Adam West kind of takes it as like a dramatic role, but in a comedy. But Keaton then read Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns and made the turn to a more dramatic depiction of Bruce Wayne.
0: Yeah, I feel like, you know, that's such an interesting focal point in his career because That's what fans thought too. Like Michael Keaton was announced as playing Batman and fans were like, Oh, it's going to be a comedy like the 60s show and fans like revolted. Um, Warner Brothers stock price dropped when that announcement was made. Everyone was like, Oh, how can Mr. Mom play Batman? Um, everyone was super fucking upset about it. And basically the only person who thought it was a good idea was Tim Burton, um, who I believe his rationale for it, other than the fact that he thought Michael Keaton had eyes that looked traumatized, was that he thought it didn't make sense for Batman to be like a six foot two buff guy. Um, Because he's like, well, then why would you dress up as a bat to scare people? You're already super scary if you're a six foot two buff guy. (laughs) Like, wouldn't you be like uh, 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 like a wee little little guy like Michael Keaton? (laughs) Which I think is an interesting way of thinking of that. But like, because of doing Batman, not only did, you know, Batman shift to being dark and gritty in the public imagination, a shift which just keeps... Going ever darker. Um, but then, like, Keaton's shifted to being yeah. like a dramatic dude after that.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and I'll just put in an asterisk here that um, playing opposite uh, Keaton in Batman is Kim Basinger. Yes. Not yet divorced from Alec Baldwin. Baldwin. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> not yet married either. Right. But yeah.
0: But we can play a lot of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon with the people that we're talking about here tonight. I
1: mean, I'm not talking about. Kevin Bacon, I'm talking yeah. about Michael Keaton. Sure. Um, Keaton has made so many movies, <laughs> uh, but some that I will mention here are 1993's Much Ado About Nothing, 1994's Speechless, which he starred in with Gina Davis, and 1997's Jackie Brown, which is a very interesting role for him.
0: Yeah, he's really good in it. He's so good that he got a spinoff movie from that.
1: Yeah but he did see a decline of quality roles being offered to him throughout the 2000s and 2010s. However, he saw a career resurgence with 2014's Birdman, where he basically plays himself. (laughs) And he was nominated for Academy Awards, British Academy Awards, ultimately winning the Golden Globe for Best Actor and um, the SAG Award for Best Actor. He saw continued success with 2016's Spotlight, 2017's Spider-Man Homecoming, and returned to Tim Burton for 2019's Dumbo. And he apparently is set to return as Batman for the DC Extended Universe in
0: 2023. So Michael Keaton, yeah, like to, to reverse in time, definitely like established as a comic star at this point, right? And like, this is a comedy, And so his presence here is, you know, part of signaling that it's a comedy. And Keaton ultimately basically created Beetlejuice. Interesting. Um, He created the character's look. He instructed the makeup and costume department on what Beetlejuice should look like. Uh, He created the character's personality. He improvised about 90% of his dialogue. So when you look at like the earlier script drafts and you're like, well, wait a minute, when did Beetlejuice go from being like, you know, uh, Middle Eastern Jin or Sammy Davis Jr. to being like the weirdo, like Joker kind of character that Keaton plays? It's it's Keaton. Like Keaton did all of that. He basically showed up and was like, this is who Beetlejuice is, said all of his own dialogue. Like it, all of the things that make Beetlejuice Beetlejuice are Michael Keaton.
1: Interesting. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Um, So yeah, at that point, the character, you know, diverges very significantly from who was in all of the screenplays. So that kind of brings us over to the Dietzes uh, in the cast. I will say that um, a lot of young actresses auditioned for Lydia. Like there's a laundry list of actresses who they brought in to read for Lydia, who's the the main uh, character of the movie, basically. Um, And that ultimately it came down to two people. Uh, Alyssa Milano and Winona Ryder and Winona Ryder won out, uh, because Tim Burton liked her performance in a movie called Lucas.
1: Yes. So Winona Ryder was born on almost Halloween, uh, (laughs) October 29th in 1971 in Winona, Minnesota. And she was named Winona Laura Hurwitz, uh, so named after the town. Mm -hmm. Um, and Laura came from family friend, Laura Huxley, Wife of Aldous Huxley. Wild. In fact, many notable family friends include Alan Ginsberg and Philip K. Dick. Who the fuck are her parents? <laughs> her mother is Cynthia Palmer. Um, she is an author, video producer, and editor. And her father was uh michael d horowitz and he is an author editor publisher and antiquarian bookseller so i think it's uh with uh, her dad that kind right. of has those connections huh weird when she was seven the family moved to rainbow a commune in california
0: okay yeah
1: um and that's when she you know she didn't have access to like television probably not radio so she read a lot
0: yeah okay so a lot of answers to my why is winona ryder so fucking weird t-shirt being answered here in this segment
1: absolutely after three years in rainbow the family moved to a town near san francisco she began taking acting lessons at age 12 in 1983 and began auditioning for film and tv um, she auditioned for the 1985 film Desert Bloom, and while she didn't get the part, the director, David Saltzer, did like her enough to cast her in 86's Lucas. And this is when she chose the screen name Winona Ryder, uh, which was because um, her dad was playing an album by Mitch Ryder in the background when she had that phone call. So she was like, yeah,
0: cool. Huh. Wow. Can you imagine just, like, deciding your name? Like, that's like a cartoon scene when the, they're on the phone and it's, like, whatever they see in the room. So, um, after- What's your name, kid? Oh, I'm Winona uh, 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 Ryder. Yeah, that's it.
1: <laughs> she saw critical success for her role in 1987's Square Dance. And, as you said, um, after seeing Ryder in Lucas, Burton cast her in Beetlejuice as a goth teen. And she was 17 at the time. That same year, also saw the release of a film she was in called 1969, where she starred alongside Kiefer Sutherland and Robert Downey Jr. Her next big hit was, uh, well, hit in quotation marks, was 1989's Heathers with Christian Slater. She got repeated praise for her acting prowess in Heathers and in these other movies. Heathers ultimately bombed, but has since become a cult hit.
0: Yeah, big, big cult hit. Controversial take, perhaps? I don't think Heather's holds up. Um, I don't think it's good. And I think that a lot of the like attitudes and media that it influenced, um, I, I think it was a bad influence on future media basically. Um, however, that's a minority opinion and probably Gen Xers will cancel me over it. (laughs)
1: She returned to working with Tim Burton with 1990s Edward Scissorhands, opposite her then-boyfriend Johnny Depp. And that year, she also starred in Mermaids, which my mom would be upset if I didn't mention, <laughs> because it's with Cher. Um, again, Mermaids, uh, you know, critical success, uh, didn't do too well commercially. So that's when she shifted to doing literary adaptations which she did with uh, Coppola for 1992's Bram Stoker's Dracula, Scorsese in 1993's The Age of Innocence, and in 1993's The House of the Spirits and 1994's Little Women. Um, now these movies in each of them, like she got nominated for a bunch of awards. For example, she was nominated for an Academy Award for Age of Innocence and Little Women. She was nominated for a BAFTA for Age of Innocence and won a Golden Globe for her performance in Age of Innocence. And in 1994, she won a Jupiter Award for Best International Actress. So everyone's like, wow, she can really act. She's really amazing. But her movies are, you know, hit or miss. Mm -hmm. It's never really consistent. And after the mid-90s, they tended towards flops. Mm -hmm. So, for example, 1996's Boys. Right. Also in 1996 was The Crucible Mm -hmm. with Daniel Day-Lewis. Jeffrey Jones, who plays her dad in Beetlejuice, also appears in that movie. And 1997's Alien Resurrection.
0: Yeah, where she, you know does
1: a formidable job. She tries so hard.
0: She is distinctly weird in that movie, is how I will put it. It's <laughs> a... If, if like, she is successfully weird, yeah. that's how I'll say it.
1: 1999's Girl Interrupted was supposed to be... Like, her comeback a little bit. Like, yeah, we're doing this film. I'm weird in it. It's a drama. But, like, look, my acting chops and it's going to be good.
0: Yeah, I remember that movie having a lot of buzz around it.
1: Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, Angelina Jolie saw the boost, the career boost instead.
0: Right.
1: 2001 saw a hiatus from acting for a writer, largely due to uh, what people call, like, the shoplifting incident. mm mm-hmm. Um, In 2001, Ryder was arrested for shoplifting from Sex Fifth Avenue uh, and ultimately was charged with four felonies, including burglary and grand theft. Now, media at the time questioned, like, why are you like upgrading these to felonies. Sure, shoplifting and yeah, it was like $5,000 of merchandise, but that's a little ridiculous.
0: Yeah, because like, you know, that probably was one pair of socks at Saks Fifth Avenue.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Many people likened this to a show trial, paparazzi kind of taking it out of proportion a bit. Um, Ultimately, Ryder was... Ordered to do four hundred and eighty hours of community service and pay around three thousand seven hundred dollars in fines, as well as restitution in like the six thousands to that uh, store of Saks Fifth Avenue. However, because she completed her community service within the first three years, the felonies were dropped to misdemeanors. Though she was on probation until two thousand five.
0: Yeah, it's always interesting to me, like what things will sink you with the public and what won't like, yeah, Winona Ryder sort of became like persona non grata because she shoplifted at a Saks Fifth Avenue, which to be fair is a weird thing for like a rich celebrity to do. Um, And then like Paul Rubens, who I mentioned earlier who kind of set off Tim Burton's career. um, He like got dropped from public acceptance because he was arrested for jerking off in a porn theater which like technically is public indecency and is technically illegal, but also like it was weird because he suddenly got kind of like this, um, reputation as being like some sort of like uh, pervert weirdo. And it's like, he was masturbating at a porno theater. That's, that's sort of like calling someone weird for screaming at a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, there's other stuff going on with Rubens that I don't have time to get into, but I'm just using it as an example of like, how these people got dragged over the coals. And meanwhile, like, you know, Mel Gibson can be caught saying horrific things like every six months and still gets movie deals.
1: Um, so with this, you know, show trial and a lot of that negative publicity, uh, Ryder's career took a hit. Um, but she started coming back to the screen with A Scanner Darkly in 2006, opposite Keanu Reeves, Robert Downey Jr., and Woody Harrelson. Um, And then had another movie, um, well, this is a horror short in 2008 called Welcome, which was directed by Kirsten Dunst, Hmm. which is really interesting, Um, and then was in 2010's Black Swan.
0: Right.
1: uh, She returned to working with Burton in uh, a remake of Frankenweenie in 2012, and her biggest return has been with Stranger Things, beginning in 2016. Um, Now, people who are familiar with the most recent season of Stranger Things will know that a song from Kate Bush is used in a very pivotal moment and it's kind of brought that particular song back into people's minds and seen a lot of popularity. Well, apparently they used Kate Bush because Ryder was often wearing tour shirts of Kate Bush's or wearing like pins featuring Bush on set when she wasn't on like in front of the camera. So they were like, yeah, Kate Bush is cool. Let's do this.
0: Right. What's interesting here is that like this pattern that's sort of continuing of like actors who like were on the verge of becoming huge when they appeared in Beetlejuice became like huge actors in the early nineties for whatever reason suffered like a slump through the 2000s, 2010s and have like all kind of like been having these comebacks lately, which frankly I'm going to pin the comebacks on directors who were kids in the eighties being old enough to make things like the reason the Duffer brothers used her in stranger things is because they grew up in the eighties, which is why that show is all about growing up in the eighties. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you've already kind of mentioned who plays her dad. Um, and and you're going to get more into him in a bit, I assume. Um, originally the role of her mom, Delia was cast with Angelica Houston, Interesting. But Angelica Houston had to drop out of the film due to illness. Um, and she was very quickly replaced by Catherine O'Hara.
1: Catherine O'Hara, yes, uh, who is a Canadian American <laughs> actress. She was born on March 4th, 1954, in Toronto, um, the sixth of seven children. Um, With that many siblings, uh, she quickly found comedy to be the way to set herself apart. After high school, she entered the comedy scene as an understudy in The Second City in Toronto. Now, uh, for anyone who isn't familiar, The Second City is basically an improv theater group. You could also think of it as like the Canadian Saturday Night Live. It's not exactly, but you know, you can kind of make the... Yeah, argument.
0: at least in terms of the, the later television show and kind of the way that it served as a platform to develop talent.
1: Yeah. So in 1976, with two years under her belt, um, she was made a regular cast member when um, Second City created the sketch show SCTV. She had other TV appearances, but SCTV shot her to fame the 70s into the 80s and would earn an emmy for outstanding writing the 1980s saw her break into film with 1980s nothing personal and double negative beetlejuice would be o'hara's sixth film though by this point she's been acting in front of cameras for over a decade
0: yeah yeah um i think 1980 is the year she's not on sctv because she was making those movies but then she comes back the season after Yeah.
1: Now, millennials will recognize her as the mom, Kate McAllister, in the 1990s Home Alone and 1992's sequel. Um, And she would rejoin on a Burton project for 1993's Nightmare Before Christmas as the voice of Sally. Mm -hmm. Though, as I said before, that was directed by Henry Selick, not Tim Burton.
0: Yeah. But again, it's a very Tim Burton product. My favorite detail about that is that Catherine O'Hara is the singing voice for Sally as well, which is is actually like um, abnormal for animated films. Um, If I recall correctly, she sung the songs assuming her voice was going to be used as a guide track for like whoever big name, you know, Celine Dion, whoever they got in to actually do the songs. And then they used her voice and she was kind of shocked by that.
1: She's had many live-action and voice roles, including the Frankenweenie remake in 2012 um, and the When Marnie Was There dub in 2014. She was a guest star on 30 Rock in 2012 with Alec Baldwin. And, of course, her most recent claim to fame is with the Canadian show Schitt's Creek, which ran from 2015 to 2020. And over the course of those five years, but especially that final year... O'Hara would earn um, six Canadian Screen Awards as Best Lead Actress, a TCA Award for Individual Achievement in Comedy, an Emmy for Lead Actress, and a Golden Globe and SAG Award for Lead Actress.
0: And all for a show that her, like, former SCTV co-star Eugene Levy had to basically, like kind of drag her to do. He was
1: like, can you do me a favor? Like, we'll only use you for the pilot. And then once we get funding, we'll swap you out. Because she was, like, enjoying retirement.
0: Yeah, she was like, I'm old. I don't want to do a TV show.
1: But then she, like, really enjoyed the character. A lot of Moira Rose on that show actually comes from Catherine O'Hara's ideas, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. Um, Now, I don't know if you'll be talking about this later, Ben, but a fun fact about Beetlejuice is that o'hara would meet her future husband on the beetlejuice set
0: yes i do have a story about that okay
1: well i will leave you to talk about production designer beau welch later on then
0: so everyone else in the beetlejuice cast um from this point on i feel like are less brand name people for like (laughs) listeners at home um but there's still like a lot of interesting folk um They all kind of, you know, fall into the category of these people who really had to be convinced um, Mm. to be in the movie. Um, As I kind of briefly mentioned, everyone who is in this movie said no to doing it at least once, except for Gina Davis.
1: Yeah. So Jeffrey Jones would have needed to be convinced. He plays um, the dad of the Dietz family, Um, but you may best remember him as Principal Rooney in Ferris Bueller's Day Off in 1986. Now, Jones was born on September 28, 1946. His father died when Jones was a young infant, so he was actually raised by his single mother, who was an art historian. He graduated high school and then went to Lawrence University to be a pre-med student. Um, though he would pursue acting as a hobby in university productions. In one of those productions, he caught the eye of Tyrone Guthrie. Do you know who that is?
0: No, the name doesn't strike a bell.
1: Uh, He's a big deal in the theater community, particularly in Canada. He's a founder of the Stratford Festival in Canada.
0: Oh, yeah, okay.
1: Um, So Guthrie brought Jones into uh, the Guthrie Theater, where Jones caught the acting bug and never returned to finish that uh, medical degree. (laughs) Instead, he would study at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Arts and then work with the Stratford Theatre for three years. Some notable stage productions that he's done, because he's done many, uh, kind of range from Shakespeare to The Elephant Man. Um, However, his first named speaking film role was in 1983's Easy Money, His next role would be Emperor Joseph II in 1984's film adaptation of Amadeus. Right, yeah, I remember that. And he's always really mad that people remember him more for Principal Rooney than Amadeus. He's, like, good
0: in Amadeus. Yeah. He's funny.
1: Yeah, exactly. He's like, why, like, I was much better in that. Why don't you remember me for that? Um, Because, yeah, he got a lot of critical acclaim for that small part.
0: People remember him for Ferris Bueller's Day Off because he's extremely memorable in that movie because he's like a focal point of the, he's like the fucking T1000 in that movie <laughs> like he's like why don't you remember me for this like mild like character cameo where I'm under like a ton of makeup and costume as opposed to this other role where I'm the main antagonist of the film like come on guy anyway sorry <laughs> yeah
1: He'd work with Gina Davis on Transylvania 65000 in 1985 And then would do Ferris Bueller in 1986, as well as Howard the Duck that year. Oh
0: yeah, he is in Howard the Duck.
1: Yep. 1988 saw him in Beetlejuice, as well as the Sherlock Holmes spoof, Without a Clue, as Inspector Lestrade. And then he would join Alec Baldwin for The Hunt for Red October 1990. And he would return to working with Burton in 1994's Ed Wood, playing the amazing Criswell.
0: Yeah, that's right. He does play Criswell, yeah.
1: He would join Gina Davis again in 1999's Stuart Little. Now, his filmography is short compared to the other people that we have talked about so far. Um, And that's partly because, you know, he shifted to TV. Uh, He was pretty notable on um, the show Deadwood, which ran from 2004 to 2006. Um, And he would do some voice work. But also because in 2002, he was arrested for possession of child pornography and solicitation of a minor. At that time, he was being accused by a 17-year-old who would have been 14 at the time of the incident. Um, He pleaded guilty. um, He didn't challenge it, and so he was registered as a sex offender. And he has been arrested a couple of times for failing to update his status when he would move, the first being in Florida in 2004 and then when he would move to California in 2010. Um, it also seems to be a thing that haunts him a little bit whenever he does a movie and he moves to an area to be close to production, and people have an outrage of like a sex offender is in the area. Right. Um, but that's kind of where his story ends for us. He's still alive, he's 75, um, but he has pretty much stopped acting. Right. Now, Beetlejuice includes many celebrity cameos, including an actress named Sylvia Sidney who is a ghostly caseworker.
0: Yeah, Burton had to fight to get her in the movie, as I recall. Really? Yes.
1: She had been acting since 1927, with notable roles in so many movies, but the few <laughs> I will mention are uh, 1936's Sabotage, 1952's Adaptation of Les Miserables, 1973's Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams, which... get in which she received a nomination for um, an an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress and 1976's I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. Her 1988 appearance in Beetlejuice earned her a Saturn Award and her last role ever before passing away uh, was as Grandma Florence Norris, fan of country yodel music in 1996's Mars Attacks.
0: Also directed by Tim Burton. Yes. Yeah, I feel like one of the many things that Burton felt kinship with Ed Wood over was like bringing old actors back and like befriending them and kind of fighting for them. Like, the reason he had to fight to get her in the movie wasn't because the studio had any particular feelings about her one way or another. It was just like, oh, she hasn't been in anything for forever. Like, who's this old person? Yeah. Um. You know, it's like, why don't you use an old person who is in a lot of movies and is like current, right? Like he's like a golden girl. Like, I don't know. Um, Same with like his friendship with Vincent price, you know, et cetera, et cetera. He was always just trying to like bring these people forward who he enjoyed as a kid.
1: Other cameos include TV personality and talk show host, Dick Cavett as Catherine O'Hara's character's agent and Robert Goulet, a singer and actor known for originating Sir Lancelot's role in the 1960 musical Camelot, opposite Richard Burton and Julie Andrews.
0: Yeah. Who like, I mostly know Robert Goulet as like a lounge singer, basically.
1: And he's French Canadian. Yes. Always have to mention that. Another actor that I want to highlight here is Tony Cox, who plays the preacher. He is an actor with dwarfism who also appears in Willow, Return of the Jedi, and Leprechaun 2. Hmm. Providing the preacher's voice is actor Jack Angel, whose other credits include being Balto in the 1995 movie of that same name, playing Mr. Shark and Rocky Gibraltar in the Toy Story franchise. He was in the 2002 Treasure Planet, Um, but his voice acting roles go All the way back to 1977 with um, playing Hawkman on the all-new Super Friends Hour. He was also Dr. Blake on the 1981 Spider-Man show. He's been on Darkwing Duck, Hey Arnold, Ben 10, and most recently, a made-for-TV movie in 2019 for the Care Bears.
0: Hmm. Okay, so prolific voice actor. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if this is like a fun fact. Um, just a fact just like a fact uh, a behind the scenes fact um but the actor uh glenn shaddix Mm. who appears in this movie um he's also the voice of the mayor of halloween town uh in nightmare before christmas um so he passed away and they played uh the banana song at his funeral Um, Which is the song that they sing around the dinner table when they all get possessed. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I needed that context in order to understand why that was significant. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, Just something I found out looking at trivia for this movie. Mm -hmm. So, of Beetlejuice's $15 million budget, uh, only $1 million was marked for the film's special effects, um, which are quite numerous. Uh, I know yeah, you haven't seen it, odd. but like there's a lot of special effects in the movie. Um, so to this end, Burton actually made the decision to like purposely make the special effects look like the B movies of his childhood. Um, so like they're stop motion for a lot of part, um, or they're like using old fashioned techniques. Um, and, and basically he was purposely going for an aesthetic that would look cheap and fake looking. Um, okay. Sort of taking advantage of that low budget and using it on purpose to create this homage to old 50s B-movies, essentially. To realize the film's look, uh, Burton originally wanted production designer Anton first, who would later work with Burton on Batman, creating the, like, gothic version of Gotham City for that movie.
1: He first wanted first? Correct.
0: Uh, But first was unavailable. So Burton used his second choice, uh, Beau Welch, who would return to work with him again on Edward Scissorhands and Batman Returns, kind of establishing, I think, in those movies what we think of as like the quintessential Tim Burton look, really. During production, as you kind of mentioned, um, Welch developed a crush on Catherine O'Hara. And towards the end of shooting, Burton encouraged Welch to go ask Catherine O'Hara out on a date. And Welch was flabbergasted at that idea that he, a crew member, would even talk to an actress, much less ask her out. Like, it just, to him, was like, oh, that's just not done. Mm. Like, you don't do that, you know? Uh, But the director had told him to do it, so he went over, he (laughs) asked Catherine O'Hara out, and he's still married to her to this day.
1: Yeah, they have two kids.
0: Yeah. So, uh, Warner Brothers disliked the title Beetlejuice,
1: Mm. which
0: I think makes sense, right? It doesn't tell you anything about what the movie is about. Um, It's not how the character's name is spelt. Um,
1: Yeah, for the longest time, I thought it was supposed to be in reference to like juice made of beetles.
0: Yeah, no, not at all. The character just hasn't is named after this star, as I mentioned. And then the title is spelt the way it's spelt because like, that's how you pronounce the name, and it's just easier to you know, do that that way. Um, it comes up in the movie, but regardless, like Warner Brothers was like, yeah, can we not call it that? Uh, so the studio wanted to call it House Ghosts, kind of a play on house guests. Yeah. Uh, Burton hated that. He thought that was really bad and dumb. In a discussion about this title, he threw out Scared Sheetless. As like a joke, like you might as well call it "Scared Sheetless," and then was horrified because the studio execs were like, "Yeah, Scared Sheetless, that's funny. No. Let's use that." Um, ultimately, Burton fought for the original name, and of course, it was released as Beetlejuice. Uh, test screenings were extremely positive, um, with audiences reacting like very strongly to the Beetlejuice character, um, like liking. The Beetlejuice character quite a lot, even though he's ultimately like an antagonistic force in the movie. And so this led to Burton shooting an additional scene as an epilogue of Beetlejuice, like sitting in a waiting room, kind of like checking in on him after the events of the movie, um, just you know, like due to that positive audience response.
1: Okay. Would that be maybe to potentially set up a sequel? No, no okay. not
0: at all. It's not a setup for anything. It's just another gag, but it's like showing you that he's not like. I Destroyed. guess right yeah that he's just like hanging out and we have a few more jokes with our friend Beetlejuice basically. Okay. Um so Beetlejuice was released on March 30th 1988 and it made nearly 75 million dollars on its 15 million dollar budget.
1: So much money.
0: Yeah. Um Pauline Kael called the movie a comedy classic.
1: Oh wow, they impressed Pauline Kael.
0: And other critics, uh, like Variety and the New York Times, praised the film's originality and creativity. Some critics did dissent from this opinion, like Roger Ebert, who gave the film two stars. Uh, he disliked the slapstick and the over-the-top antics of Keaton's character and wished the movie had, like, focused more on kind of the quiet romanticism of um, the Maitlands.
1: Sure. Roger Ebert also is uh, a huge fan of Venona Ryder. Like all of the, like a lot of the positive reviews of her acting come from Ebert.
0: The film won the Academy Award for Best Makeup. uh, And at the Saturn Awards, it won Best Makeup and Best Horror Film. Mm. It was up against Child's Play, Halloween 4, Hellraiser 2, and Nightmare on Elm Street 4.
1: Okay. Child's Play is Chucky, right? Yeah,
0: that's the first Chucky movie.
1: Yeah. uh, Okay. Well.
0: (laughs) And of course the movie's success led to Burton's career changing because, you know, after doing these two low budget feature films that then he got this like big profit on Warner Brothers decided it was time to like trust him with a large budget film. And so he did Batman, um, which, you know, Again, had this very torturous, troublesome production because they were hiring a guy who was like the goofy comedy guy, Um, you know, with the goofy comedy star. Um, But Batman made, uh, I think, $400 million in 1989. Whoa. Like, before you adjust it to inflation, like, it was a massive hit and changed sort of Burton from being the goofy, weird comedy guy to, like, the big blockbuster guy and then i think after a few more years you know with stuff like edward scissorhands and nightmare before christmas hollywood finally figured out that like tim burton wasn't the quirky comedy guy or the blockbuster guy tim burton was the weird macabre guy because that's the actual through line through all of it right absolutely absolutely The film's success also led to an animated series for kids, which I mentioned at the top of the show. It ran for four seasons from 1989 to 1991, uh, totaling 94 episodes, and it features a very, like, toned-down version of the premise where basically uh, goth teen Lydia and her best friend Beetlejuice have wacky adventures in the netherworld. Uh, so I, I sort of mentioned that like sometimes people who grew up on the show but didn't watch the movie till way later get shocked by the movie because like Beetlejuice is the bad guy in the movie and he's trying to force Lydia to marry him, like it's not yeah. the same relationship as on the cartoon at all. For sure, the animated series was produced by Canadian animation Titan Nelvana. And there were also three video games produced for Beetlejuice uh, one in 1990 for MS DOS, one in 1991 for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and one in 1992 for the Game Boy. The film's success also made the desire for a sequel kind of inevitable. Uh, Warren Scarin had been working on a sequel idea called Beetlejuice in Love when he. Died in 1990 of bone cancer. Uh, so following this, Burton hired writer Jonathan Gems, uh, who would later work with Burton as the writer of *Mars Attacks*, to write a sequel called *Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian*, uh, where Beetlejuice. Oh no,
1: that sounds terrible.
0: Beetlejuice basically follows the Deetses, who have moved to Hawaii so that uh, Charles can open up a resort in Hawaii, um, and the is kind of like anger like a um like a big kahuna spirit in hawaii and so beelgeuse comes to screw up their day basically this idea came from the fact that burton thought that mixing the aesthetics of german expressionism with the aesthetics of 1960s beach surfer movies would be funny sort of like you know the joker in 60s batman like picture like you know Beale Juice on a surfboard yeah no yeah no um So the cast actually all agreed to return um, on the condition that Burton was the director. Um, And so the movie kind of got lost in the quagmire a little bit because like basically after Batman uh, Burton, you know, he did Edward Scissorhands and then kind of was immediately on Batman returns. Um, So he was very busy. So, you know, time was ticking. He gave the script to be rewritten by Daniel Waters, who was the writer who wrote Heathers, uh, which Burton quite liked. And so Waters was brought on to rewrite the script. And then Burton was like, actually, the script for Batman Returns is in more trouble. I need you to come over and rewrite Sam Hamm's script for Batman Returns. So Waters did that and basically never worked on Beelgeuse Goes Hawaiian. Uh, At one point, the Geffen Company assigned it to a different writer. And then in 1996, Warner Brothers approached Kevin Smith, to rewrite Beeljuice Goes Hawaiian to which, ah. to which Kevin Smith famously said, did we not say all we needed to say with the first Beeljuice film? Must we go tropical? Uh, and then he, <laughs> uh, decided to, he basically declined to write Beeljuice Goes Hawaiian in favor of writing the script to Superman Lives, which was Tim Burton's Superman movie that was in production in the mid nineties, uh, Starring Nicolas Cage, which, of course, never got made. By 1997, the idea had kind of floundered, and the script was considered unusable without recasting because too much time had passed, because the script still assumes that, like, Lydia's a teen girl, basically. In the late 90s, original writer Michael McDowell was actually working on, like, a different Beetlejuice sequel altogether while he was battling AIDS, but his death ultimately left that version unfinished in 2011 warner brothers brought on seth graham smith uh who wrote the novel abraham lincoln vampire hunter and the screenplay abraham lincoln vampire hunter um as well as the screenplay for dark shadows which burton directed uh they brought him on to write a sequel that would have had burton and keaton returning for Um, like a a true sequel set 25 years later, like rather than doing a reboot. Um, Winona Ryder confirmed that she would happily return uh, if Burton and Keaton returned, um, saying that she um, uh, considers Lydia Dietz to be like a really big part of her life. By 2015, Graham Smith's script was completed and Keaton, Ryder, and Burton were all confirmed to return with shooting set to begin in late 2015 for a 2016 release date. However, Burton became unhappy with the script. And in 2017, he hired Mike Vukidvinovich to rewrite the script. And then by 2019, Warner Brothers sort of admitted that the project was shelved. Then, in February of 2022, Brad Pitt's production company, Plan B, announced that they were developing Beetlejuice 2 for Warner Brothers. So, who knows?
1: Interesting.
0: Beetlejuice is available on iTunes, Google Play, Microsoft, Cineplex, YouTube, and Amazon video, and is available on Blu-ray and 4K. Um, If you're going to buy it on disc, I recommend going with the 4K version. Uh, Even if you just have a Blu-ray player, the release has like a 4K disc and a Blu-ray disc just because the digital transfer they did for the 4K version is superior than the old Blu-ray
1: Great. Well, folks, um, thanks for sticking with us for this longer episode. Um, I am excited to see this for the first time. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss Beetlejuice from 1988, directed by Tim Burton.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Beetlejuice.
0: Beetlejuice.
1: Beetlejuice from 1988, directed by Tim Burton. Ben, um, you've seen this movie
0: before. Mm -hmm.
1: Did it hold up for you? (sighs) Eh. Eh? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Eh, interesting. (laughs) I'm really curious to hear more about what you think then. Um, But... We'll probably get into it for the discussion.
0: Yeah. The way that it doesn't hold up doesn't surprise me mm. because it's the way that a lot of Tim Burton movies haven't held up for me since I went to film school.
1: Oh yeah. 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 Um, this was my first time. Mm-hmm.
0: What did you think?
1: I had a good time. I liked a few of the gags, particularly the visual gags, mm. Um, and I, think it's a fun amusement ride Mm -hmm. um it almost feels a little bit like you know a not scary haunted house sure and yeah it was a good time there were parts that i didn't like and there are things that i'm like you're not supposed to be like well you know they don't really like answer or follow up this thing sure um because the movie's not concerned about that uh the movie's concerned about having a fun time mm-hmm. um and I think it at least delivers that yeah
0: i I would agree it's it's definitely um in that kind of like eighties comedy vibe of like you know, don't think about this too much yeah like it's it's like
1: cinema since would have a field day with this movie, perhaps
0: yeah um it's it's just like you know movies used to be a lot more loosey goosey.
1: Yeah. Well, how about I tie up some of those loosey-goosey threads by telling folks what the movie is? Yeah, for sure. So... For Beetlejuice, uh, we follow the married couple, Barbara and Adam Maitland. They live in a big house in Connecticut. They love this big house. They've really made it their own. Uh, But someone in the town who is a real estate agent keeps trying to pressure them to sell because, you know, this house is just too big for the two of you. It should be for a family.
0: Uh, A small detail is that this person um, sold them the house to begin with, I believe.
1: So it's just just
0: a real estate agent trying to get, you know, paid coming and going.
1: But also, given uh, the way that Barbara reacts to that, um, they're trying to have kids and are not succeeding.
0: Yes. Yeah. That's sort of a implied but not stated thing.
1: They go out driving. It's going to be the start of like this big vacation at home that they're super excited about and they get into a driving accident and die. Next, we see that they are back home, but clearly are ghosts. And they find a handbook for the recently deceased. They try to leave the house and they just enter a void filled with sandworms, all of that stuff. Now, they do try to read this handbook for the recently deceased, but it's just like too dense to get through. It's like when you're reading a calculus book, but you don't know anything more than like your basic multiplication tables. Then the Dietz family from New York moves in. And here we see that there is Charles Dietz, who is a stressed out stock or investment broker, something like that. He's
0: he's a developer. Like, that's straight up what he is. He's a developer.
1: And he's looking for some quiet time in the country from his stressful job. There is Delia Dietz, who is uh, an experimental avant-garde artist from New York who uh, is neurotic about her sculptures. And then Lydia Dietz, who is a goth teen. I guess kind of relevant here, uh, Delia is Lydia's stepmom. Now, also here is Delia's best friend and uh, spiritualist advisor and uh, interior designer, Otho. So they begin changing the house to fit um, their New York sensibilities, much to the Maitland's dismay,
0: yeah, uh Adam Maitland's aesthetic is very like this old house and Delia Dietz's aesthetic is very I'm a character in a Tim Burton movie.
1: <laughs> now, the Maitlands do try to get help from like the afterlife bureaucracy and they're told like no, if you want your house, you have to scare them out because you're stuck there for the next 125 years. So they, you know, do try to scare them a few times um and during such attempts um they do learn that lydia can see them uh lydia also takes like photos of them as like uh under sheets kind of ghost photos and in their most uh college try moment um we get the deo dinner scene um where um the deets are there they've invited Dahlia's agent and um some other people over and uh suddenly they start getting possessed by the Maitlands and singing the song Deo. Now the Maitlands are like, yeah, we did it. We successfully like spooked them. Now they're going to go running out of the house. Except uh, the Deets see this as a business opportunity, um, turning this into like uh, an amusement park, um, a sideshow, people coming and like doing it as a tourist attraction, something like that. And this is kind of when the Maitlands are at the end of their rope. Now, throughout this, they've been seeing these flyers from a Beetlejuice saying, like, hey, I'm a a bio-exorcist, like, hire me to deal with your living problems. Their caseworker, as part of the afterlife bureaucracy, says, like, hey, don't summon him, like, he's bad news. But at this point, the Maitlands are at the end of their rope, so they summon Beetlejuice and he's too much. He's too chaotic. He turns into a snake and like haunts the deets and their dinner guests. And it's just, it's too much. People are potentially hurt. So the Maitlands say, no deal. We're not going to go through with this. Now in all of that chaos, Otho does get a hold of the handbook for the recently deceased. And the Maitlands get told that that's not good. You need to get that book back, you need to destroy the evidence that Lydia has taken of you, and you need to get Beetlejuice out of the house, basically. Now, throughout all this, Lydia and the Maitlands have developed a bit of a bond, kind of like a friendship, kind of like a mentorship kind of thing going on. Now that Otho has the handbook for the recently deceased, he plans to basically use it to force the Maitlands into performing the parlor tricks and getting the deets their tourist attraction. Now in summoning the Maitlands to perform, um, he's actually kind of like, quote unquote, killing them in the sense of like, the ghosts are turning super, super old, like it's not going to be well It's not going to end well for the Maitlands.
0: Yeah. At some point in the movie, it gets explained to them that, um, like exorcism for ghosts is, um, like death for the dead.
1: Yeah. And so Lydia, in a frantic attempt to try to save the Maitlands, calls on Beetlejuice and says that, sure, I'll marry you if you help the Maitlands. So Beetlejuice arrives. He helps the Maitlands, gets them out of that trouble. And then he's like, cool, we're getting married. And then the last bit of the climax of the movie is like, oh no, it's a wedding. We have to do something to stop this. And all kind of these antics and gimmicks and attempts to stop the wedding. Um, eventually, everyone you know, will try to say Beetlejuice because you have to say his name three times for him to disappear. But something happens to make it so that they can't finish saying it. Um, in the case of Barbara, she gets sent to the Void Full of sandworms, but luckily, uh, just as the wedding is about to, um, you know, say I do, you, I now pronounce you man and ghoul and wife, demon and wife. Uh, Barbara comes back in with a sandworm that eats Beetlejuice just out of nowhere. Fade to black. We see Lydia come home from school, talk to the Maitlands who are setting up the house back to how they liked it, uh, and clearly having kind of like a a child parental relationship talking about like, how did you do on your math test, that sort of thing. Charles Dietz is reading a How to Cohabitate with Ghosts book, and Delia is now an award-winning artist with her Beetlejuice-inspired sculptures. The end. So what's interesting to me, Ben... Hmm is we talked in the context setting how Tim Burton, um, particularly after like this movie and some future movies down the line in his career, he really gets labeled as, like, the gothic weirdo with a heart of gold, right? right. Like yeah, yeah. Something like that. And the thing about weirdo is you don't think someone who would go along with, like, social norms i guess right and what's interesting to me with beetlejuice is in the broad strokes of things it's about a couple who can't have kids who find a way to have um, a found family with sort of an adoptive daughter and lydia who is a goth teen ends up finding sort of this mentor relationship and kind of this like
0: the the maitlands are better parents for her than her real parents are like they're surrogate parents
1: that's the word, surrogate parents. Um, And it's about like establishing a like social order within a household.
0: Yeah. And not only that, but like the Maitlands are like the most normie, right? Like they're super, super normie. And the Dietzes are the weird ones. I wonder how much of that to any degree has to do with this being like a very early Tim Burton movie where it's Mm. like, well, we assume that the audience is going to sympathize with the normies. And like that the arc for Lydia should be that she's like, you know, a happy normal girl by the end. We're going to make a bunch of jokes about modern art mm-hmm. with Delia and how like self-absorbed she is. And then it's like, oh, we need to come up with designs for her modern art. OK, well, they're, they're going to be these weird Burton designs because it's a Burton movie and and that sort of thing. Like where the incongruity that you're kind of identifying is because this is like a movie being directed by Tim Burton before Tim Burton movies were a brand.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely it. I'm also thinking about our conversations on the Adams family when we mm. covered that in the in a previous horror Jason episode. How like no, that's like a solid social family unit and right. like they are there together, supportive, loving each other, but they're weirdos. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting to me to think about how like similar in terms of like family construction. Sure these two movies are
0: wild that like tim burton never made a adams family movie you know yeah anyways
1: i don't think it would have been good no i think Uh (laughs) he would have been too into the aesthetic of it because you need a heart at the core of it sure but i think with beetlejuice he's still met he's not quite as you said burton as brand so that you know you've you do have the heart here uh, versus some of his later stuff where it doesn't feel it feels too much like for the aesthetic
0: yeah a lot of his like later stuff starts to feel very hollow yeah so i have problems with this movie yeah i have two specific problems with this movie and they're kind of like interrelated intertwined mm-hmm. but i want to acknowledge before i start talking about those things that like the movie has a great design um, looks great. It has fun performances. You know, it's really obvious why people fell in love with these characters. You know, it's a it's a fun time. I get why this is iconic. You know, why the 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 scenes where they're like possessed and singing Harry Belafonte songs have such like a bizarre joy to them. Yeah, that I can tell. Like you know, this is why people loved this stuff. Um,
1: I think the makeup effects. Are really good and they definitely hold up. Mm-hmm. I really like their caseworker having um, so she has a slit across her throat and she smokes like ten packs a day, and the smoke comes out of her throat slit. Yeah, that's such a nice touch.
0: Yeah, all of the the dead are sort of depicted as you're kind of just trapped in whatever state you were when you died, basically mm-hmm. forever. In the original script, uh, the Maitlands were supposed to be wet. Basically, the whole movie because they their car goes over a bridge and into water, and Tim Burton was just like, "That's really uncomfortable. You guys don't have to do that."
1: Yeah, though that would probably be why they drowned, and rather than like died in a fire. Yeah, the stop motion stuff for the sandworm, the attempt to make it look like a bad '50s movie kind of style of special effects that holds up. Mm-hmm. The special effects don't quote unquote hold up because they're not trying to make it look like it's going to hold up.
0: Right, exactly. Which honestly, is like an interesting way to make the movie timeless.
1: Yeah, I agree. Because it's like,
0: you know, the effects looked hokey then, they look hokey now, so it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I agree with you. The makeup effects are really well done. I always really like um, the effects used to make them look really aged at the end when they're summoned because they aren't realistic at all. Like they, they are very cartoony. Like they look like a Tim Burton drawing of an old person, not what any kind of old person really looks like. And that's like a really cool... Aesthetic. Like, I like that the movie doesn't look real, basically, at any point. Um, mm. I really like the bright color palette. Um, you know, I miss colors in movies. So Yeah. Um, when it
1: was dark, I could see what was going on. <laughs> um, I think there are good laughs and gags in this. Um, the, one, the one visual gag that I loved, and I would not have loved before moving into this house, mm. is Charles Dietz leaning back and reading homeowner magazine and I was just like oh god this is what I've turned into since moving in here because I've been like Ben look at this wallpaper what do you think of an accent wall
0: yeah yeah exactly (laughs) no totally yeah there was a lot of those elements of the movie that definitely spoke to me more uh in this context yeah sure which is I mean why we picked it right
1: exactly the only laughs or things that were meant to be gags that I was just like hey this didn't age well b it shouldn't have been done then either um and c i don't like in my movies is uh beetlejuice being a pervert
0: yeah which is basically his whole deal yeah beetlejuice is a problem in this movie and it's kind of hard to talk about because like he's the title character and audiences loved him like that's why burton went and put in more Beetlejuice at the end of the movie. And, you know, Michael Keaton creates this very unique character. Mm -hmm. I think that the movie suffers a little bit from the fact that it's been over 30 years. And so watching it now, I don't think Keaton's Beetlejuice has the same shock value as he might have in 1988, like in terms of being like coming across as like a unique characterization. Like some of the stuff that he's doing is like, yeah, everybody does this now, you know?
1: I agree, but I do think the way he performed Beetlejuice as being like the voice he does for Beetlejuice Mm. is unlike any voice I've really heard before. I really like how much he disappeared into the role. Mm -hmm. I think my very first time ever seeing Michael Keaton was as Batman. Sure. And I bring this up because textually, I understand why this scene is in the 89 Batman, but When um, Michael Keaton as Bruce Wayne is like, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. Right. Always struck me as really odd because throughout the rest of it, like Bruce Wayne's a very um, straight, solemn character. Yeah,
0: not manic.
1: Not manic. And obviously he's doing it for a purpose there. But it just seemed like, why would you go like that far? And it was so interesting watching Beetlejuice because I was like, oh, this is where he pulled from to get Let's Get Nuts.
0: Yeah, this is that's the most Mike, like in the context of Michael Keaton's career up to that point, that moment is the most Michael Keaton moment. Right. But, um, conversely, one of my favorite moments in Beetlejuice is the one where he like drops the voice completely and talks like Michael Keaton to be like, well, I went to Juilliard and then I, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. um, what's <laughs> to what,
1: list, his qualifications. Yeah. What's
0: funny is like, if, if I were to say, Hey, Michael Keaton's been cast in the new Batman movie and you were like who and I was like the guy from Beetlejuice who played Beetlejuice you would say I would think he was
1: playing the Joker
0: exactly right isn't like yeah Yeah. totally um but of course it was Jack Nicholson which at the time was a very obvious casting move the thing about Beetlejuice that's weird is to remember like how much of the character Keaton created himself, right? Like a lot of it's improvised. He created the look, he created the voice. And so like the take that Keaton has on Beetlejuice as a character is that he's a deadbeat.
1: A deadbeat, a little bit of a car salesman, like sorry, like bad car salesman, no uh, shade to the (laughs) car salespeople listening to the podcast. But like, yeah,
0: he's sleazy. He's a slime ball. He's a failure. Like he kind of took the backstory that Beelgeuse has of being like the caseworker's assistant who like went off the rails or whatever. Like he portrays them as if the guy's like been to prison a bunch of times. He's the guy who like asks you for some money to go buy a pack of smokes, but then he spends the money on like the racetrack and now he's in debt and he wants more money to help him get out of debt. Like,
1: but also will bum a smoke off you at the same time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like he, he's playing it a very specific way and where the movie's problem comes from, is the need for Beetlejuice to be likable and funny and the bad guy at the same time.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting how you've brought that up because I felt like the movie was missing something. Like there wasn't enough of something's presence, Mm. which personally I was particularly surprised about for two reasons. One, I thought Beetlejuice was in a lot more of this movie. Yeah,
0: he's in... 14 minutes and i believe 25 seconds of it
1: and two with all of the research i did about particularly gina davis i was expecting more from her performance Mm -hmm. but it's not there a lot of it is just like side eye looks and and like wide eye
0: and occasionally she gets lines of dialogue where she just straight says kind of her motivation or like reminds you of what their attitudes are because someone was like, oh, we need to make sure the audience knows what's going on kind of stuff.
1: So it felt like this movie was lacking a core in some sort of way or like a presence, which is funny because like hauntings. Ooh. Right. I will say, though, it's good mm-hmm. that Beetlejuice is only in 25 minutes or whatever you said. Yeah. Like, uh, I yeah, don't, you don't want
0: too much of him.
1: No, it would not be good for him to be the main character.
0: Yeah. So what we can see now that we have the context setting is that they they put themselves into this corner where in the original script, Beetlejuice is trying to kill the Deets and fuck Lydia. And at some point they decided we need to tone that shit down because this is going to be a comedy. And so that got toned down to, like, he's, he's driving the Dietzes out of the house, but in, like, a, a way that's too dangerous. And he wants to marry Lydia, but we've set up throughout the script that he's, like, a super weird pervert, so it's kind of obvious where that's coming from. But then, like, you have to answer, like, well, why marry her specifically then? Especially because um, Lydia's implied to be, like, 15 or 16 or something like well, that. Well, he
1: says something about, in order for me to stay here and not get cast back, I need to marry a living person. right
0: right he barely says that yes he says like he says
1: it so fast that like you will miss it
0: yeah he says you know something along the lines of like yeah come on i gotta get married like i don't make the rules um and it's like you don't make the rules beetlejuice but the writers do yes and so here's the main problem with beetlejuice and it's the main problem with like 90% of Tim Burton movie. And I never noticed it growing up. I was a big Burton fan growing up. I loved most of his nineties movies growing up. Um, and then I went to film school and I learned how to write and I learned about structure and character motivation and arcs. And I realized that Tim Burton's movies are a fucking mess. 90% of them because characters have like motivations and the storyline has like an arc and things make sense but they don't the movies Mm -hmm. don't do enough work to make things make sense batman returns which i grew up loving that movie that was my favorite batman movie for years um characters change motivation when they go up a flight of stairs like things fall apart if you think about them for too long stuff does not make sense and the way this most commonly comes out is the villain plans in Burton movies don't make sense what tends to happen is the this happens in both Batman movies which is they're really fresh in my mind so they're the ones I'm going to go to as examples but it applies to Beetlejuice too. in both Batman movies the villain's plan is destroyed before the third act happens and then the villain just suddenly has a different plan in the third act that comes out of nowhere and is kind of random and then the villain is defeated by some wild random means so like In the original Batman, the Joker's trying to poison the city with combinations of, like, chemicals and and cosmetics. And then Batman blows up the chemical factory. And suddenly, the Joker's plan is about poisoning everyone at a big parade. And then the Joker's defeated because he falls off a tall bell tower. And then in Batman Returns, like, the Penguin's plan, the whole movie, is all about kidnapping the firstborn children of Gotham. Batman solves that really easily before the third act. And so suddenly, the Penguin has an army of mind controlled penguins with missile rocket backpacks that are just going to blow up Gotham. And Batman defeats that by jamming the signal, which somehow ends up with penguin falling off a tall thing into some water. Uh, You forgot when he runs for mayor. Yeah, that's in there somewhere, but (laughs) like, this is what I mean though. It's a mess. So like here, what's Juice's motivation? Well, for most of the movie, it's, he wants to do this job for, the maitlands it's kind of unclear why he needs the work or how they're going to be paying him yeah they never work out a deal yeah but he's just kind of doing it and we establish that he's like a pervert and that he's like perving on barbara and then like he's perving on lydia when he sees her and then suddenly his motivation changes to like i want lydia and it's like the like the idea that he needs to marry Lydia in order to like be part of the real world and not get resummoned back is introduced like the scene before it happens basically. Yeah. And then suddenly that's what the movie's about. And then it's like, how do they stop Beetlejuice? Is it some sort of like clever creative thing? No, Barbara just comes in through the ceiling riding a sandworm and the sandworm like hits Beetlejuice, like eats him and then crashes through the floor. And it's like, how did she get the sandworm to, like, how did she know how to, how did any of that happen? It doesn't matter. And that's... She's the Deep. Right. This happens in a lot of Burton movies. Like, things operate on a vibe yes. and on a feel more than any kind of logic. Like, it's like, how did Barbara manage to do any of that? It doesn't matter. Nightmare Before Christmas, frankly, has, like, a similar thing of, like, what's Oogie Boogie's plan What's his deal? He's why just is, chaos. Why is he doing anything? Yeah. Right. And so this is like kind of the problem with Beale Juice is like the script is weak and it's wild that these scripts, you know, for this and for Batman come from this guy, Warren Scarron, who was like renowned for being a good script doctor when like, so for instance, the main character arc of this movie that kind of should be the thing the movie is focused on is the Maitlands wanted kids. They couldn't have kids. Yeah. Barbara wants a daughter and can't have one. They grow to really like Lydia because the ending of the movie, like you, you talk about that bit where it like fades to black and then comes back. That fade to black is no one wanted to write the scene. That was the conversation where the Maitlands are like, so Dietz is, can we sort of adopt your daughter and have our house back? And you can just kind of live here as like tertiary adjuncts of our lives. And like, the idea that they want Lydia to stay with them is like really suddenly introduced. Like there's one scene where Barbara's like, I really like that girl. And then there's another scene where Barbara's suddenly just like,
1: I want to be with Lydia.
0: Yeah. I want Lydia to stay with us. And it's like, that's a weird thing to say about someone else's child. Yeah, it is. Um... And I can see like how the dots connect, but the movie's not really doing enough work to give those characters the time for those dots to really connect for the audience.
1: Yeah. And like you're speaking about like the emotional part of the movie, even just for like plot wise, Mm -hmm. one of the key things that the Maitlands had to do was get that book back from Otho. Do they ever do that? I don't know. Yeah, Otho gets like scared out of the house from Beetlejuice. I don't know if he still has the book, but who cares? It's, uh, you're having fun.
0: Yes. And that's a really common thing with Tim Burton movies. Yes. It's it's an aesthetic, it's a vibe, and you get the feeling that the scripts are very like, you know, we have the arcs drawn out, and if you talk to Burton about, like, why he made certain choices, like, it'll make sense, but it's not explicitly said anywhere. Like, why does the Penguin have circus freak Henchman in Batman returns. Isn't this a circus, like more of a Joker thing. There's like a whole backstory that Tim Burton worked out. It's not said anywhere really in the movie. That's like an example of this kind of thing where I'm sure it made sense to someone at some point, but it didn't actually make it into the script. Hmm. So it doesn't make it into the movie and the movie ends up feeling kind of hollow.
1: Yeah. Kind of speaking to that hollowness earlier. Gina Davis doesn't do a bad job. I just expected there would be more. But I will say that early Winona Ryder, like this might be the youngest I've ever seen her. She's very good.
0: Oh, yeah. You can absolutely tell why she was in this movie and everyone was like, oh, you're a breakout ingenue star. Yes. Because like the movie works because we like Lydia.
1: Absolutely. Catherine O'Hara is so beautiful. Um, (laughs) It's like looking in a mirror. (laughs) Uh, yeah she's uh, really good in this movie and we've talked about how the movie like doesn't work sort of Mm -hmm. but i think it manages to work because it sets up very early not to take itself seriously right even before the maitlands die Mm -hmm. the goofs with like the realtor but particularly how they die with this dog yes. and the dog is on like the two by four holding them up and they're like, no, 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 don't jump off. And the dog jumps off and the car goes into the pond. Yeah,
0: it's a fucking like comedy skit thing. Like you wouldn't expect something like that to kill them in a different kind of movie, basically.
1: So like it's like yeah don't take it seriously and they start that off right at the get go with mm-hmm. the credits with the Danny Elfman theme mm-hmm. because boy we we know Danny Elfman enjoys his like little bit of circusy marchy kind of vibe right. right like he did the Simpsons theme yeah. but it just really starts off uh, and it feels a little odd because you know the camera is zooming in over the town shining style Yes. Right. So it's just like a little interesting. And it got me thinking about how Tim Burton did Big Fish. Okay. because that part of the reason why I love Big Fish is because I love when movies or or media or whatever bridge drama with comedy um, and like a feeling of tragedy and comedy and just like feeling like, yeah, life sucks let's laugh about it kind of vibe and you get that with big fish with like this back and forth of like real life and then these stories that the dad would tell um and it's in the stories that the dad would tell that you get the burton aesthetic and well not maybe aesthetic is the wrong term but the whimsicalness (laughs) the whimsy of tim burton comes through that um and then we're back to like the real world and it got me thinking about like That line's very clear in Big Fish, and that line does not exist in Beetlejuice.
0: And you know, it's funny you bring this up because um, I would be remiss not to mention what the gag of the opening credits is, which is that we aren't doing a helicopter shot over the town. We're doing a pan over Adam's model of the town, Yes, which is telling you right off the bat, this is all fake. Yes. This is all artifice, right? Absolutely.
1: And just a quick note, Danny Elfman also did the score to Big Fish.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: So just to put it out there that like Danny Elfman can do music that isn't like circus-y vibe <laughs> kind of thing.
0: Circus, circus march music. The movie knows what it's doing on like a vibes level. Yes. It's just a mess as a script. And frankly, most Tim Burton movies are a mess as a script. Um, Ed Wood isn't, maybe because it has like the fact that it's based on like a real person and there's like a real chronology of events to kind of like nail Anchor, itself to yeah. yeah. Anchor. Um, and the other Tim Burton movie where like the script isn't a mess that comes to mind is like Sweeney Todd because it's an the, adaptation. Yeah. It's a, the book from the musical. So it's not the book from the musical, a musical script, uh, of the spoken dialogue and story is called the book.
1: Oh, okay. I, for some yes. reason I was like
0: wet. Yeah, I you. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But yeah, whenever it's like original material, like a lot of times it's just kind of going off of like, this feels like it should be the next thing that happens, which I think means that his movies, um, actually work really well when you're a kid.
1: Yes. And work really well when they are shorter. Yes. Um, true. like Beetlejuice is a quick 90 minutes. That Alice in Wonderland movie, I feel like it was longer than 90 minutes and that dragged.
0: Yes. so long that was the
1: start of my being like oh tim burton you and i don't get along actually
0: (laughs) the like thing about it is the shorter the movie the less time you have to go wait what yes because you're on to the next thing right but yeah the climax of beetlejuice is a fucking mess and it's not unique it's a mess in the same way that the climax of a lot of burton movies are a mess and whether that bothers you or not has to do I think with like you know
1: how much are you entranced by the vibes
0: yeah um i don't want to say like how much you've turned your brain off because i hate that phrase in relation yeah. to watching movies i think what i want to say is like
1: how much you're enjoying yourself how much
0: like left brain versus right brain are you doing mm. like are you analyzing the story you're going to realize it doesn't make sense but if you're just kind of like enjoying the ride you're going to have a fine time.
1: And then there's us doing both. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And having
0: to kind of conclude that like, this is a good movie. It's fun. It works. It does not hold up. It's not good. Like,
1: (laughs) well, like I said, I had a fine time.
0: Like those other movies I mentioned, the, the early Batman movies and stuff. The thing about this movie is you can tell once someone's told you you can tell that it's been through a lot of different script drafts because that's ultimately the problem with Beetlejuice is he's a character who made more sense when he was more dangerous but would have been less likable if he was more dangerous. But the need to still have him be a threat means that his likability is still undercut by like the need for him to be a pervert for the story to work. You know what I mean? Like it, it the, I don't think he needs to be a pervert for the story to work. No, I don't think so either. I'm just sort of saying that like, it's, it's like you didn't go all the way in changing this character. You know, it's like it, the, the reason why characters in early Burton movies have these inconsistent motivations and plans is because what you're seeing is remnants of previous drafts that like stuck around and yeah. don't quite fit anymore. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, folks, thank you so much for joining us on this horror adjacent bonus episode ride. We hope you have enjoyed the vibes Mm -hmm. along with enjoying Beetlejuice with us. If you would like to hear more about uh, the other horror adjacent episodes, you can find those on our website at ScreamScenePodcast.com, and uh, we will also have our next bonus episode poll up on our Patreon at patreon.com slash ScreamScenePodcast for folks to vote for what our next bonus episode will be on.
0: As a note, um, we're going to be skipping August uh, for bonus episode uh, just to try and get ourselves kind of back on track with the the craziness of the move. I'm sure you've all noticed that like the episodes have not quite maybe been coming out when they should, and that there's been these delays. So to give us a chance to kind of get the production cycle back on track, what we're going to do is we're going to have the poll up in August to decide what September's bonus episode will be. And that's kind of how it's going to work from then on. Um, in the past, we've sort of had the pull up the first half of the month and then we know what the movie is the second half of the month. But that that's a really fast production cycle. This way we know what the movie's going to be. We can plan earlier for it and hopefully that will help with getting these episodes back out on time again <laughs> as we sort of recover from the move. And, you know, then before that, you had Heatstroke. And then before that, I think you had throat (laughs) and then like it's a bunch of shit's been happening folks so we need to you know have that chance so check out the poll on patreon.com slash scream scene podcast for what will be september's bonus episode
1: thank you so much for listening everyone bye
0: bye